always was compassionate towards those that wanted to come hear him. Even though sometimes his answers may not have appeared compassionate at first, oftentimes it was to provoke a reaction in some. And and certainly we see the Lord's wisdom displayed in those answers that he often gave. But I believe this was the heart of Jesus every time he ever spoke to anyone. His heart was sensitive toward their need, especially those that were in sinful condition, still in a sinful condition. And he he, he was brokenhearted. He was sensitive toward their needs. At the end of the day, Christ was the only one that could meet their need. And so he oftentimes, I believe this was his heart, when he spoke to them, he was uh, brokenhearted because he saw them as sheep having no shepherd. Jesus said that he was the good shepherd, and he is the good shepherd. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. And so that was the goal in his ministry. But we find here... Jesus reacting the way Jesus always reacts. When people wanted to come see him, he oftentimes stopped. Regardless of his situation, regardless of what he planned to do, he stopped to do what Jesus did best, minister. But in the next two verses, we find people that were called into the ministry by the Lord. We find people who were helpers, if you will. At least, the very least you could say is, they were servants in the First Baptist Church. (laughs) We have a lot of First Baptist Churches, y'all. Have you ever noticed that? One day we just need to have like a big tug of war to finally settle that debate. Who is the true First Baptist Church? But, But really, Jesus was the pastor of the First Baptist Church, and the disciples were the members of that church. And so, at the very least, the disciples were the servants the members and the helpers in the First Baptist Church. And so as Jesus takes time out of his very busy schedule, he's just as worn out, if not more worn out and exhausted than the disciples. He stops to do what Christians ought to do. Minister. Be a witness. Share the life-changing message of the gospel. That's what we're called to do. Exhibit it in your testimony, but speak of it with your speech. Don't just think that lifestyle evangelism is enough. Not only live it, but occasionally we need to tell it. Jesus did both. But in verse 35, we find the members of the church, maybe not as enthusiastic as Jesus is about this particular mission. The Bible says in verse 35, And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away, that they may go into the country round about, and into the villages, and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say, Five loaves and two fishes. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and, and, and by fifties and When he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. 
And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. I believe this with my whole heart. God not only wants Joshua Baptist Church to reach out to everyone in this neighborhood. I believe we ought to go and we ought to knock on doors and we ought to witness to people and we ought to just confront them with their need for salvation. I believe that's true. But I also see that in the Bible there's a pattern that we start in and work out, not the other way around. You might be asking yourself what I mean by that. Well, it's a lot like this. When Andrew, the disciple, met Jesus, do you know what the Bible says that he did? He first findeth his own brother. In fact, in Luke chapter 8, the very first sermon I ever preached, there's a, a guy that's a little out of his mind. He made a perfect Baptist, in fact. He was called Legion, for there were many devils in him. And, and Jesus that day wrought a great miracle there. You know, he cast the devils into the swine. And Legion, now we find him clothed and seated at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. And it's a wonderful story of the transformative power of Jesus over every sin and over every dark power in this world. It's a great story. And Legion is so encouraged by what has just taken place in his life. He looks at Jesus and said, you just, you tell me where to go and I, I'm going to go with you. Yeah. I'm going to stick right with you, Jesus. I, I want to follow you. And, and maybe even in the back of Legion's mind, he saw these disciples that were following Jesus everywhere. And, and maybe Legion, based upon the events that had just transpired in his life, looked at them with somewhat of envy. Because they got to be with Jesus at all times. And, and I'm, I'm sure Legion there was, was volunteering to follow Jesus in the same way that Peter and John and all of the disciples did. And he said, you just tell me what to do. I want to follow you, Jesus. You know where Jesus tells him to go? Home. Go home and tell everything that I've done for you. I believe that... Uh, Christians maybe get so focused on the outside of things and we, we put faceless, uh, we assign faceless people as the sinners that we're going after, right? We kind of view it as the other side of the door. We don't know who's going to come to the door and if you've ever gone door knocking, you know how scary that can be. Sometimes you go knock on a trailer home and, and sometimes the footsteps sound a little bit like the Incredible Hulk is coming to the door and you're not entirely sure. And, and the other day I knocked on a door and there was one of the largest men that I've ever met in my life. Ethan Gerald was with me. One of the largest men I've ever seen and he came without a shirt on and we invited him to church and walking away from the door I told Ethan there, I said, man, Ethan, that was a lot of man right there. And you never know who's on the other side of the door. And, and oftentimes that's kind of who you Im imagine and picture when we preach sermons that are evangelistically driven. But I'm telling you, that's starting out and working in. And I believe the Bible tells us to start in and work out. Amen. Even when Jesus told them that they would first be witnesses, the pattern was to start in Jerusalem and then to expand out into Judea, and then into Samaria, and then finally into the uttermost parts of the earth. 
You see, in the Bible we find an, a, a, a philosophy of ministry that is not that we just go start reaching every highway and hedge first. And I believe we ought to do that, certainly. And, and we knock on doors and we try to reach out to our community through uh, various and sundry different uh, methods, through bus ministries and through carnivals and all sorts of things like this. And that's good. But let me ask you, what are you doing to affect the people in your life? That's starting in and working out. I don't want you to come to soul winning on Saturday if you're not willing to do it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. How are we going to make a difference in the life of the people that we already have a personal relationship with? Because what are the chances we're going to change some stranger's mind if we cannot convince the people that actually trust us? about the importance of Christ in their life. The sermon title is actually quite simple, and it's actually posed in the uh, way of a question. It is this. What stands in the way of Jesus in your friends' lives? Now, as we study this, I think we ought to be careful. It's so easy to become critical of the disciples when we read their failures, is it not? Uh, We picture Peter oftentimes saying things that seem a bit out of turn and out of place. And so, and it's easy to say, Peter, why would you say that? But how many of you are thankful that the entire record of your life events are not recorded on pages for other people to evaluate? Amen. I could say that I am glad I'm not in that, that line. But however, when we study these men, I think it would be wise instead of becoming critical of them... How about we just study their mistakes, not critically, but in order to learn from their mistakes so that we don't make them as well. Let's study tonight what stands in the way of your friends coming to Jesus. So I want to say this. These men probably had a few really good excuses to why they would not be reaching out with the same zeal and fervor that Jesus was. I want you to notice in verse number 31, they were probably really exhausted. Verse 31, the Bible says, And he said unto them, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and, what's that next word? Rest a while. Jesus understood they needed rest. They had been ministering long hours and long days. And in fact, if you continue to read the verse, the Bible says... For there were many coming and going. It was just a, 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 a turnabout door as people were coming to Jesus, a revolving door. People were coming and going and it never seemed to end. And the Bible said, And they had no leisure, no, so much as to eat. They didn't even have time to grab lunch. They were always ministering. And I'll tell you one of the things that can often become a problem in our lives, especially as God's called us, each and every one of us, to full-time ministry. You know that I'm not the only one called to full-time ministry in this church. You are too. You just don't have the the pastoral role as I do. We're all supposed to be full-time ministers of the gospel. And so as we're in that ministry, one of the problems that can arise is we just get really tired in doing it. That was one of the issues with these men, especially if you have been doing it for a lot of years, right? The longer you serve as a Christian, you kind of become numb to all the effects of 
the problems that are in other people's lives and, and the issues that they might be going through. I mean, we've seen it before, and so it doesn't affect us like it used to. And, and you know, that problem's not quite so big because we just dealt with a bigger problem the other day. But what we must understand is exhaustion cannot numb us to the effects of the need of every person to have Jesus involved in their life. Don't become so exhausted that you just stop presenting the gospel. Just this last week, we were able to see a man that we had been praying for for over a year come to trust Christ as his personal Savior. I'm reminded of Brother Robert Baez's dad trusting the Lord at 95 years old. You know how long his name had been on that prayer list? It had been on there for quite some time. I was sharing with a youth just this last Wednesday night. There's been a man's name on the uh, staff prayer list for over 20 years that he would get saved. Do we just give up on him because he hasn't trusted Christ now? Well, certainly not. It might become exhausting to pray for that man, but I just believe that God is still in the miracle working business. And I just don't think that God's timing always aligns with my timing. So let's just keep pushing forward and allow the Lord to strengthen us and allow the Lord to help us. But beware, exhaustion is a real thing in the life of a Christian. If you remember, Elijah was sleeping under the juniper tree when the angel showed up. The angel woke him up, then fed him, and you know what the angel told him to do? Go back to sleep. Now that's the ministry I want to go to. Sleep, eat, sleep. That sounds about like, you know, a baby ministry. I'm all for that. Sleep, eat, sleep. I like that. But just so you know, don't get this idea that we are super Christians. Don't get this idea that you can work less hard than the preacher or that... You ought to be working harder than the people in your Sunday school class. We ought to all be working hard for the cause that we have is worthy of our effort and our labor. Exhaustion is a really very real thing and certainly the disciples were dealing with that a little bit. Secondly, we become emotionless. Verse number 34, the Bible tells us that Jesus was moved. Jesus was moved because he saw them and the Bible says he had compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. Let me ask you a very serious question. Does the thought of someone dying and spending a Christless eternity in hell still bother you? Does it affect you? Because we see sad pictures on the news all the time and we say things like, oh, that's terrible. We hear of people that that go through rough times and maybe they're in our own life or maybe a story pops up in our feed and we read that and we think, man, they really got it bad. I'm telling you there is no malady that anybody will face on this side of eternity that is greater than the fires of hell. And yet oftentimes we empathize with the people that maybe lose a parent prematurely or that maybe lose a child prematurely with great amounts of sorrow and we ignore the reality that people are dying going to hell. Does it still move you? These disciples said, Christ, why don't we just send them away? There was nothing more pertinent, nothing more valuable, nothing more profitable that these people could have been doing than spending time with Jesus, and yet the disciples were the one ushering them away. It is the goal of this church to usher people to Christ, not away from Him. 
But if we're not careful, our emotionless state, the fact that we just don't have the passion that we once did will push people away. It will repel them. You want to know why Jesus said that we would be known as His children, why people would recognize us as His disciples? If we have love for one another. The Christian life cannot be lived without emotion. The Christian life cannot be lived without compassion. Do you still have the emotion that aligns with Christ? Do you still love sinners? Do you still want to see them saved? The disciples were suffering from exhaustion. They were suffering from emotionlessness. And then, and then thirdly, I sense this in the passage. There was a bit of exclusivity here. They're, after all, the disciples, aren't they? I mean, they're the twelve. <laughs> they're the chosen. Jesus called them. And, and it's like they suggest to the Lord that their role and their position and their status with Jesus is more important than these people just coming to hear Him teach. Do you sense that in the passage? As they let them go and do their own thing, well, they weren't volunteering to leave Jesus. There's a bit of exclusivity here. Well, I certainly hope this is not the case with any of us in this room. I wouldn't put it past us to occasionally feel this way. We feel like we have a monopoly on Christianity. Like Christ really only wants to deal with us. And, and so we neglect to be the witnesses that we ought to be because Christianity is our thing. Maybe not our friend's thing or our family thing. I mean, they have their things. Maybe their thing is taking their kids to ball practice. Or their thing is, I don't know, going to Six Flags every week. Or, or their thing is this or that. But Christianity is my thing. Disciples ought not be that way. Did you know there is enough room at Jesus' table for everyone that will come? Did you know it never gets crowded at the foot of Calvary? There's always room for one more sinner. The disciples here were suffering from exhaustion and the, the toll of the ministry had made them emotionless. And now you kind of sense that they have an exclusive right to Jesus or at least that's the way they feel. What a shame. I don't want to be that way. I want to be one that is so passionate and so fervent about bringing souls to Jesus that I become known as the annoying pesky preacher. You know, that's what we all want to avoid, isn't it? We don't want to be the, forgive me for using this term because I don't really love it, but we don't want to be the Jesus freak in our circle of people. We don't want to be the person known for you know, starting the church conversation and starting the conversation about Jesus at the dinner table. We don't want to be that person. But I'll tell you, that's the person I want to be. I want to be the person that's so outright living my faith that it just oozes off of every word that comes out of my lips. That's the person I want to be. The disciples, because of the tolls of the ministry, weren't that way. So this evening, let's study... Three assumptions that we all make when we choose to not invite, when we choose to not extend an invitation for Jesus to be a part of our friend's life. Three assumptions we always make. Number one, the assumption of self-service. Verse number 36 is where we'll find this principle. The Bible says, the disciples speaking to Jesus, send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread. 
as Christians, we realize that we are to depend on Jesus for our every need, right? Uh, whatsoever that is not of faith uh, is sin. It d- can't please God if it's not of faith. And so we trust Jesus for our next meal. And whether or not you have the money in your wallet to buy your next meal, you realize if you were right with God that you didn't put that money in your wallet. Jesus did. And so we trust God for everything. And He is the provider of every good gift for all things that are good. Every good and perfect gift cometh from God, cometh from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness. God gives every good and perfect gift. And we're to walk each day trusting God for our needs. That's why the Bible says, you know, the lilies of the field, they're not concerned with it. And yet God clothes them in beauty even more so than Solomon in all of his splendor. He speaks of the the sparrows, how they don't plant and they don't uh, 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 try to harvest anything. And yet God provides for their needs. So Christian, the, the realization and the principle we ought to learn is trust God for everything. And so I find it interesting here that Jesus' disciples are recommending to the Lord that these people depend on themselves for their food. Yeah, Jesus, let's send them back into town. Let them figure out what they're going to do for supper. Standing right next to the miracle worker, they're saying, let's let them live an ordinary life while we get to experience the blessings of Jesus. What a shame. They never even considered that Jesus could perform a miracle. They were just more interested in getting everybody gone, and and so they assumed that they can take care of the life that they're living, a self-service philosophy. Here's what we do oftentimes. In our minds, the reason we do not witness to our friends and our family is because we assume... If they want Jesus, they know where to look for Him. Our country, our state, uh, is so full of churches, it is absurd. Every corner there's somebody else starting a new church. We have Grace Gateway. We have Grace Revolutions. We have, it's like we're watching a Matrix series. To be honest with you, it's sometimes frustrating how many Grace churches we have popping up. And it's just amazing. And, and, and I don't think it's for lack of churches, but, but what we do is we rationalize, well, they know my stance. They know what I believe. And if they're really going to seek after Jesus, they can come to me. They'll figure it out for themselves. That's exactly what the disciples were doing. Lord, let's let them figure it out. Let's send them back to town. Let's let's let them take care of their meal. It's no different than us going to the gas station and pulling up to the pump. How many of y'all have ever seen on TV or maybe a movie or something where people used to come out to the gas pump to pump fuel for people, for the cars? I mean, that would be great. Especially in August when it's 105 degrees, I would love somebody to come pump my fuel. That would be wonderful. But now what we do is we have the credit card pumps, you know, and, and man, it's incredibly frustrating when those don't work, right? You take your card, you slide it in there, and they say, sorry, please try again. And so you do it again, and does it work? And then this message is the irk of my existence. Please see cashier. Why did I go through that process if 
I just needed to go inside to do this. It's incredibly frustrating. First world problems, right? I mean, it's obviously not a big deal, but, but we have a self-service lifestyle now. We, we go up and we try to figure out what we got to do with that pump, and we do it. It's self-service. We kind of place that on other people as they, in their search for God. We say, well, there's churches everywhere. They know what I believe. They, they have their own beliefs. And so if they want to find God, they know where to start looking. Can I tell you this? Being a constant voice of biblical reason in someone's life is probably the most effective tool that you can be for someone. Just constantly, not only living out your Christianity and not only posting things on your social media account, but actually saying to them when they have a crisis in their life, you know what I believe? I believe Jesus could help you through this. No, instead of that, we refer them to logic and our experiences and we say, well, Dr. Phil had an episode on this just yesterday. I believe you'd love it if you go back and watch it. We say, I just read a magazine about that the other day. There is nothing more important that you can do than being a biblical witness in someone's life every day, no matter the case. Consistency. Be the person that refers others to God in every situation. They say, can you believe somebody cut me off this morning? I was headed into Chick-fil-A and they cut me off. You say, you know what? I believe God could have helped you handle that. See, he helps you aim really well. He steadies your trigger finger. Be the person that refers others to God in every situation. Be the person at work who unashamedly takes a stand for God. Man, that first time that dirty joke gets told, you walk off and see if it makes an impact for Jesus. Maybe those jokes will stop. Maybe the the vulgarity and the profanity will stop if you take a stand for God in your workplace. The assumption of self-service. What we don't understand when we carry this idea is these people have been blinded. You see, they're not going to seek after God alone. The Bible speaks directly that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds and hardened their heart so they don't even know where to turn even if they wanted to turn somewhere. And that's where you come in. You be the city that is set on a hill that cannot be hid. You be the salt that hasn't lost its savor. You be the person that when they need to look for God, you're the one they hear. Not the Jehovah's Witness, not the Mormons, not the Catholics, not the easy believism, not the uh, prosperity gospel. You be the reason why they turn to Jesus. Consistently speak of your Savior in a positive light. Never assume that people will look for God on their own. That's simply not the case. Nobody looks for God unless there's a presence of God in their life. The assumption of self-service. Number two, the assumption of comfort zones. Verse number 36, Send them away that they may go into the country roundabout and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. It's so easy for us to dismiss the real reasons why we're not really evangelistically minded, isn't it? See, we already looked at three reasons why the disciples were probably not in a ministry-minded state. Those, Those reasons ranged from exhaustion, 
They'd kind of lost their passion for the ministry emotionless. I mean, there was a lot of reasons why they were feeling this way, kind of pushing people away from Jesus. But instead of citing those reasons as the reason Jesus needed to push them away, what do they do? Well, they point out a need in their life. Well, you know, Jesus, they have certain needs and they haven't eaten supper yet. I want to ask you this. Did the disciples take a poll from every single man that was present that day and ask them if they had eaten supper yet? Did they take a, a, a survey and see if everybody didn't prepare for this and bring food? They didn't know. They were just saying to Jesus, these people have certain needs that you can't meet, Lord. And so instead of uh, going out of our way to serve them, how about we just tell them to go back into the town and eat the food that they can provide for themselves? They have nothing to eat. And oftentimes what happens in our life is we make these same excuses on why we're not evangelistically minded. We say, well, people have certain thresholds with which they'll put up with my witness in their life. I mean, I wouldn't want to be known as the guy with the cardboard sign around my neck saying, the world is about to end, uh, repent now and believe in Jesus. That's not who we want to be. So we just kind of rationalize and say, well, I have one friend that... You know, they have different background of religious views and, and they don't really attend church and they, they're not very serious about it. But, but we'll just let them be in their comfort zone and I'll be in my comfort zone and we can all stay comfortable with one another. You know what that's called? I, I watched a lot of westerns with my dad growing up. Most of them are directly from the throne of God. Some of them are not. But, but that in a western movie would be called... Yella. Yella. What it is, is we don't want to offend the sophisticated senses of our fellow people. We don't want to push them out of their comfort zone. I find it unique that when Jesus returned home, the Bible says, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue. Do you know who was at the synagogue? <laughs> That would be the place where you would find a Pharisee and a scribe and all the people that Jesus really had to deal with when he was on his earthly ministry. And yet Jesus, as his custom was, went where? To the synagogue. The Bible actually tells us that he stood up and re read a passage of Scripture. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture, but it, it speaks of Jesus. Uh, it was a prophetical Scripture out of the book of Isaiah about Jesus, and the Bible says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, Jesus is just reading Scripture here. And He closed the book, and He gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of them all turned to Jesus. The synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Amen. Now what Jesus was saying here would not have gone over easily. It would not have just comforted everybody. You see, Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah of which Isaiah was prophesying about. He's saying... He reads a passage about the Messiah and then says, This day 
is this scripture fulfilled in your ears? You know, if you read down just a little bit, everyone grows angry with him. Did you know they run him out of town and they take him to a high place to cast him off? And Jesus just barely escapes because, you know, Jesus is like way better than Jason Bourne because he can kind of see everything. He doesn't have to have somebody in his ear. Jesus can get out of situations like that. But they wanted to kill him because of the message that he taught that day. Do you think Jesus, knowing the future, being able to sense what was going to happen, could have just avoided the whole situation by not ever going to the synagogue? Do you think that he could have just avoided the situation by not being so abrupt and abrasive with his message? And yet Jesus was, and Jesus did, state right in front of them a message that he knew would not be received well. It was confrontational evangelism. You know, as bad as I hate to say this part of the plan of salvation, a man cannot be saved unless he understands the penalty of sin. In fact, you've got to understand that God loves you, but you also have to understand that there is a penalty for your sin, and that sin, that penalty for your sin is death and hell. We like to major on the love of God and the redemptive story. And I love that part of the plan of salvation. But part of the plan of salvation is that a man understands that under the law that was given by God, we stand guilty before a holy and righteous judge. That's confrontational. If the world of sinners were a cat, that message is rubbing them the wrong way. Yet we have to say it. We don't want to push anybody out of their comfort zone. We don't want to make anybody uncomfortable with the message that we have. Jesus didn't mind it. Jesus did it. Jesus made sure that people knew the truth. How would you like to be the person that died and went to hell because your friends would only share with you half of the story? We've got to tell the truth. You know, people's religious views that there is a God and that God loves this world is not enough to get them saved. Amen. There's a lot of people that believe in a deistic power, a supreme being, and maybe they believe that that God loves him, but the only path to salvation is through Christ alone. Are we effectively communicating that message? Or do we just say to ourselves, no, nah, my friends are good the way that they are. My family, they, I mean, they're, they have religious views. They, they, they're good people. I ain't never going to be a good person saved. All of us that got saved realize we ain't good. Amen. Oh, they'll be all right. No, that's what God's put you in their life for. Amen. To be the witness to them and tell them about Christ. Tell them the truth about Christ. Well, there's two assumptions that we often make. The assumption of self-service. People will seek after God on their own. It's simply not true. The second assumption is, well, they're comfortable where they are. Let's just, you know, we'll, we'll let them do what they do. No, 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 no. Christ calls us to be transformed, to be renewed, to, to be a new creature. Old things passed away. All things are become new. We must step out of our comfort zone if we're ever going to meet Christ. The assumption of the comfort zone. And then thirdly, the assumption of limited supply. Out of all of the assumptions we make, this certainly has to be the one that is the largest indictment on our faith. 
these people, or at least the disciples, give the reasoning for their uh, uh, question to Jesus. Why don't we just send them back to town? They give the reasoning for that, and that is because they don't have enough to feed them. And Jesus says, well, why don't you feed them? And they say, 200 penny worth is not sufficient to feed everyone. That was a lot of money. You see, one penny worth was about a day's wages. So this was a, a huge chunk of change we're talking about. And, and, and they say, we don't, we don't have the resources. We don't have the supply. And, and Jesus says, well, what do you have? And we know the story, the harmony of the story. But the Bible tells us they had five loaves and two fishes. Where'd they get that? Well, you know how the story goes, the Paul Harvey edition of the story. But they have five loaves and two fishes. And that is it. But what are they among so many? Well, let me tell you this. In the hands of God, it's plenty. In the hands of man, it's not. In the hands of man, it's exactly what it is. It's way too little. In the hands of God, there's not going to be any doggy bags. If, uh, it, or in the hands of man, there's no doggy bags if God doesn't intervene. But what we find here is Jesus is absolutely willing to do something about the problem at hand. And the disciples' lack of faith limited him. Because they want, he wanted to send them away. What a shame. Who is it in your life? who you're a friend of, who you're a co-worker of, who you're a relative of, or you have a relationship with, who you know has no chance of being saved. You know, the guy that's really far from God, the brother, the sister that has the criminal record, the one that, that's way far from God, who maybe grew up in church, but they've made their decision to sow their wild oats and they ain't never coming back. Who is that person for you? Because we all know one. We all know somebody from our story, from our past, who, who we say, you know, I just don't believe they'll ever turn back to God. Who is it for you? What we do is we say, that's a problem that not even God himself can handle. That's a case that's too far gone. And what we assume is God is limited on who he can save and who he can't save. We say to ourselves, well, maybe there's somebody here in Joshua who's going through a problem and, and they really need Christ. Did you know that it doesn't take a problem to need Christ? Everyone needs Christ. Now, we face a lot of pits on life's journey, but did you know that you don't have to be going through a pit to actually meet the one who can bring you out of the pit? And we, we, we put these faceless strangers as the people who need Jesus the most but the people who need Jesus most are the ones who you live with each and every day. It's not the people out there in Uganda. It's the people who you work with. It's not the people that we send missionaries to. It's the people who come to your family reunion. It's these people that need Christ just as bad as everyone else. And yet we focus on these outward end strategies and it's not working. We knocked on over 5,000 doors and we saw about 12 profitable visitors from it. You know, if we extrapolate that out, we can knock on every door in Burleson and probably still only have less than 100 people come. How do we fix this? I'm not saying we stop knocking on doors because the fact is our door knocking led about 12 people to come to church. Praise God. But I'm saying the solution is not more doors. The solution is affecting people where you are. Amen. 
The solution is speaking to those who you're afraid to speak to. The solution is having the courage to actually say, you know what? Christ has done so much for me. It's about time I start doing something for others in my life and tell them about this wonderful, loving, merciful Savior who has meant so much to me. Maybe that's how we solve the problem. I close with this. The biggest stumbling block in most people's path to Jesus is another Christian. Our insecurities, our weaknesses, sometimes our cowardice. But whatever it is, God's plan is not broken. God's people are. God's plan is that we would be witnesses unto Judea and to to Samaria and to Jerusalem and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. God's plan is that we would preach the gospel to every creature. God's plan is that we would go to every race, every nation, every tongue, every tribe and evangelize them for the calls of Jesus Christ. That's God's plan and it's not lacking. We are. Because while there's missionaries tonight in Thailand trying to minister... The missionaries in Joshua are letting down on the job. We send our money over there, but we're not willing to give our allegiance here. We're letting down. Jesus wants you to affect people where you are. And until we start doing that, nobody's going to be affected. What is it that's keeping folks from knowing Jesus better in your life? What is it that's keeping your friends from coming to trust Christ as Savior? I can promise you this. It's not Jesus.